Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to episode number 165 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? I'm your host, Chris Tripodi, and with me, as always, is Tony Pauline, and we're back with you again to break down what we saw in week 14 of the college football season and take a look ahead to the key NFL draft matchups of week 15. Just two weeks left in the college football regular season, which means no time to reschedule canceled games. And as we intimated on last week's show, the Ohio State-Michigan game wound up being just that, canceled. Now, we didn't know how the Big Ten was going to handle the Buckeyes, considering the conference's self-imposed six-game requirement to play for the conference title. But we found out today, and we're recording this on Wednesday as usual, that the Big Ten is removing that requirement and advancing Ohio State to play Northwestern in the championship. Easy call for the conference to make, in my opinion, especially since this weekend's game was canceled due to issues at Michigan and not at Ohio State, even though obviously the Buckeyes have certainly had issues of their own. What do you think of the whole situation, Tony? In my opinion, the whole thing stinks. The Big Ten uh, instituted these rules at the beginning of their delayed season, you know, to the requirements to be uh, to uh, play in the conference title game. Now it turns out that the top team in the Big Ten does not meet that requirement and their brand may be hurt moving forward for the national championship hunt. So what do they do? They change the rules in the, in the middle of the game. To me, it's absolutely wrong. You know, last week we saw a game between coastal Carolina and BYU that was cobbled together at the last minute because coastal lost their, uh, their, their, their scheduled right. their scheduled opponent Liberty because of COVID protocols so they, they brought in BYU, or I should say BYU came at the last minute to basically have a game of, uh, uh, between unbeatens. And it turned out to be one of the most entertaining games in college football in a long, long time. So, I, you know, because the Big Ten could not get their act together, delayed their season, actually canceled their season. The only reason they brought it back was because of the immense pressure that they were feeling from the players, the parents, the boosters, and, and really – left no margin for error. Now they want to change the rules. I'm looking at this. How is this fair to Alabama or Clemson or Notre Dame, who's going to likely be in the semifinals, be in the college football playoffs, and will have played twice as many games as Ohio State, and the rules are being changed for Ohio State's benefit? To me, it's just wrong. Number one, if Ohio, Ohio State should find another opponent to play, if it's not in the Big Ten, I'm sure there's an out-of-conference uh, opponent that they could play. The Big Ten doesn't want or does, does, has, doesn't want teams to play out-of-conference this year. Well, they're bending the rules to say you only have to play five regular season games to get in the conference championship. Why not bend the rules to make sure Ohio State gets another game under their belt? To me, it just stinks. In a perfect world, what I'd really like to see happen is I'd like to see Florida play a really close game against Alabama in the SEC title game, maybe, maybe even beat Alabama in the SEC title game. And then Alabama, as well as Notre Dame, Clemson, 
and, and Florida get into the college football playoff. And this is not any, this is not anti-Ohio State. The more Ohio State plays, the more game film we get on Ohio State and the Sean Wades of the world and the Wyatt Davises of the world, and the Chris Olavis of the world, the better it is for scouting, for scouting them at the next level. I just think the way the Big Ten is changing the rules in the middle of the game just stinks. Yeah, I can definitely understand where you're coming from on that one. When I said it's an easy decision for the conference, obviously, as you said, it hurts their brand to not have Ohio State in. So for them, why wouldn't they take this arbitrary rule that they placed in and change it midstream? Doesn't make it good. I do agree that a better solution would have been what BYU and Coastal Carolina did, because as you said, talking about fairness, BYU ended up playing an undefeated football team, ended up losing to an undefeated football team, and they themselves are no longer an undefeated football team, which is going to hurt them potentially in terms of uh, bowl standings or anything like that. So, you know, a team like BYU gets a game like that. It ends up being a very competitive game against a very good opponent, and they pick up a loss, um, you know, whereas in this case, Ohio State kind of gets a bye rather than having to pick up a game. And, and granted, most teams that Ohio State was going to end up playing in a scenario like this, um, you know, probably weren't, wouldn't be on their level, wouldn't give them the kind of game that Coastal Carolina ended up giving BYU here. Um, but, you know, kind of to your point about the teams making the playoff, that's still in the hands of the college football playoff committee. They don't have to put Ohio State in if they say, you know what, you only played six games. We don't really, we don't view your body of work as highly as we view the body of work of an Alabama, a Notre Dame, a Clemson, even a Florida, if the scenario you laid out kind of takes place. So, you know, while the Big Ten is kind of doing what they have to do to get rid of a stupid rule that they put in place um, and, and to kind of get, just kind of wash their hands of the situation that, you know, they more or less mishandled here. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Um, you know, while I think that they have to do what they're doing for obvious reasons, I do think it kind of stinks. I do think there were better alternatives to doing this but i also think that ultimately the college football playoff committee is the one that's going to make the decision on ohio state here whether the big 10 allowed them to go to the championship game in their conference or not uh, you I, I agree with you but the fact is this if ohio state goes in the big 10 title game and beats northwestern by two touchdowns and alabama beats florida by 10 points or more and then somehow the college football uh, playoff committee puts Florida in the uh, as the fourth team rather than Ohio State, you know what's going to happen. Uh, and people are going to be are going to explode. But, you know, I, I mean, again, you know, the, the teams that played that will have played 10, 11, 12 games. I don't think any's gonna, any team's going to play 12, but it, it will be 11 uh, with the SEC and, and in the ACC. They're going to be at a bit of a disadvantage because they're going to be the more beaten up team. I, I, I mean, all intents and purposes, when you look at the rule, the Indiana Hoosiers, who barely lost the Ohio State Buckeyes, are sitting there in the in second place in the Big East and the Big Ten Eastern Division with a six and one record. So, so the way the rules were written as of yesterday, I mean, Indiana is a team that should have gone into the Big Ten title game against Northwestern. This is all being done just to save the Big Ten brand. And again. This is nothing against Ohio State. I, I would rather have Ohio State play seven or eight games and have seven or eight ga game films this year on the Justin Fields and, and all the players. It makes for better scouting. But I, I just think it's, it stinks for, uh, you know, the, the Floridas of the world and, 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 and the teams that, you know, whose conferences 
basically set it up to have a season and started the season early enough to give themselves a margin of error as opposed to the Big Ten, who was not going to have a season and then rushed to, the, uh, to start their season at the end solely because of pressure on the outside. Now we'll get right into today's show in just a moment after this word from our sponsor. The NFL season, along with the college football season, is in full swing, Tony. And while you may not be at the game this year, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. A Jets coach was fired this week. It wasn't Adam Gase, though. Defensive coordinator Greg Williams paid for the cover zero blitz that kept the Jets winless with his job. But that's what happens when you leave a 4-6 corner like Lamar Jackson on an island to cover a 4-3 receiver like Henry Ruggs. But hey, Jet fans likely thanking him on his way out. And that's also what happens when you don't tell the cornerback beforehand, you can't let the receiver behind you. You, you, you got to stop him, even if you have to inadvertently trip him, which is a terrible thing to say, but that's what needed to happen. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. And we are back. Every week, I'm usually the one to bring up the week's topic for On the Record. But you know what? We're going to switch it up this week, throw you guys a little curveball. Tony, I'll let you do the honors of introducing this week's On the Record. We've talked about North Dakota State in the past on the On the Record, especially when it pertained to Trey Lance, their quarterback, and would he be selected before Zach Wilson? But there is another prospect on the North Dakota State roster, on the depth chart, in fact, on their offense, that is getting a lot of chatter and a lot of talk primarily outside of scouting circles. And that would be offensive linemen, offensive tackle, as a matter of fact, Dylan Raddunz, who in many areas is getting mocked in the first round of next April's NFL draft. So this week's on-the-record question is, Will Dylan Radon, the offensive tackle for North, for North Dakota State, end up in round one? Chris, what do you think? Oh, well, I'm going to go with yes here. And there's a lot of reasons. The main reason is you look at this year's tackle class. Last year, we had four guys at the top. Andrew Thomas, Tristan Wirfs, Makai Becton, and Jedrick Wills. In no particular order. Uh, I might have even messed up the draft order there. But regardless, we had four guys at the top that we knew were going to go in round one. Austin Jackson was a wild card. We were uncertain, but there were a lot of names that everybody knew that was going to be a first round pick at the tackle position. This year, you have Panay Sewell at the top. He's going to be a top five pick. But after that, I mean, it's kind of wide open in terms of who can be the second tackle selected. I know, Tony, in your recent mock, you didn't have another tackle going off the board in the top 20. And, you know, left tackle is really arguably the I don't know, second or third most important position if we're looking at quarterback, pass rusher, left tackle um, in terms of value given to these players heading into the draft. So to not have other guys going in the top 20 just shows how wide open everything is. Now, Redunz was the first player invited to the Senior Bowl this year. Now, that certainly does not make him a lock to be a first-round pick or anything like that. Um, but you know, normally, the center on an offense is the one to make protection calls. Last year... With Trey Lance under center, Dylan Redunz was the one making the protection call. So he's a smart guy. He's intelligent, which is important at the left tackle position. May not be regarded as a super elite athlete, 
like some of the guys I mentioned earlier that went last year, but he's still a good athlete, has great length and growth potential. I mean, the level of competition question, yes, it's a concern. It's a concern because he didn't get to play this year, but unlike Trey Lance, who only has that one year of experience that we were discussing when we were talking about him going up against Zach Wilson, Redon has over 30 starts in his career, and he's been very productive when on the field as well. So we're going to see him down in Mobile. And if he looks like the best tackle down there, it's going to quiet some of those level of competition questions. And then everything else, as far as the length, the athleticism, the production, you know, all of that combined together sure looks to me like a first round tackle. Tony, do you disagree here? Completely and totally. Uh, I I think there's no way that Dylan Redunds even sniffs the first round. Let's start. This all started because there were reports about a scout on the West Coast who said that he liked Redunds. Redunds would be a first round pro, uh, first round selection. He he rated Dylan Redunds the, from what I remember higher than Walker Little, and rated him as high as Penny Sewell. I can confirm that is in fact true. That, that is what this West Coast scout said. Doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be in NFL war rooms on draft uh, draft weekend. Redunds was given a fifth anywhere from a fifth to sixth round grade by scouts coming into the season. Now, usually preseason grades don't mean that much, but the fact is he only played one game this year because, because North Dakota state only played a single game this season due to COVID-19 and, and the COVID-19 issues. So how Redunds gets a preseason grade from a fifth to six round prospect and then improves his stock some four to five rounds after one game to me is, is mind boggling. We've seen Kyle Trask really improve his draft stock some three to four rounds, but Kyle Trask is having a Heisman Trophy type of season. Redunds played one game. The scout makes comment. Everybody runs with it and has Redunds in the first round. I like Redunds. I scouted him off the 2019 film. I think he's a solid prospect. I don't think he's a first round player. I never thought he was a first round player. I question whether or not He's going to be a left tackle at the next level. Somebody I know in the scouting community I spoke with, and I passed on this opinion to him. What I said was that I thought that Dylan Redunds was being ridiculously overrated. And the player that was being underrated at the offensive tackle position was Spencer Brown of Northern Iowa, who plays in the same conference uh, as Redunds at North Dakota State. Didn't mean that I wasn't infer- implying or, or inferring that Spencer Brown was a first-round pick. I just thought that people were missing on him. And this person who's close to the situation agreed with me totally. I like Redunds, but I don't think he's a first-round prospect. I think he's a second-day offensive lineman who's likely going to end up at guard in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, certainly if, uh, if he's not a left tackle long-term, that does take a lot of the first-round appeal off of him. Um, do you think there's anything he can do down at the senior bowl that, you know, obviously you mentioned the preseason grades and you mentioned that, you know, we know that he hasn't had much of a season really, if any at all this year, if he goes down to mobile, is there anything he can do down there to make you think a, that he can be a long-term left tackle at the NFL level or B that he could push to be a first round pick. You know, the, the senior bowl is a kingmaker at certain positions. We've talked about this in the past pass rusher, cornerback, obviously uh, quarterback, as we've seen time and time again, and, and also offensive line specifically, 
uh, offensive tackle. If you show well in those pass blocking drills, you're really going to help boost your draft stock. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work out. And what I mean is, you know, Austin Corbett, as you remember, had a sensational senior bowl at a multitude of positions, was an early pick in round two. It's turned out to be an absolute bust. Uh, I remember Joel Batonio having a great senior ball at uh, left tackle, shutting down D Ford. People didn't think he could play left tackle in the NFL. He ended up going in the early portion of round two. He's had a great career with the Cleveland Browns at offensive guard. So, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder. I just don't know, except for that one quote that was, uh, that the scout did say, you know, uh, basically uh, praising uh, Redunds and saying he was up there with Walker Little, even Penny Sewell, and, and everybody sort of gravitated to that. In my opinion, as well as the opinion of other people I've talked to, you know, it, it's going it's going to be an uphill battle for Redunds to meet those expectations, if you will. Doesn't mean he's not going to be a good player in the NFL. Doesn't mean he's not going to be an early draft pick. Uh, it just means. For the most part, at least in my opinion and the opinion of others I've spoken with, he's not a first-round left tackle. Now we'll have three reviews from last week on this week's show after Jamar Jefferson did not play for Oregon State against Utah. We will stick here in the state of Oregon, though, where the number 23 Ducks fell to 0-3 Cal, 21-17. We were watching Bears cornerback Cameron Bynum and Ducks receivers Johnny Johnson and Jalen Reed. We didn't really get many one-on-one matchups, if any at all, Cal played a lot of zone. Even when they played man, Bynum was matched up on the outside against Micah Pittman. Bynum, though, pretty much as advertised. Excellent recognition and awareness in that zone coverage. Great timing and ball skills at the catch point. Comes up hard against the run. Real strong form tackler. Just a good player overall. We didn't really get the chance to see him run downfield against speed, though, which is ultimately the concern on him. Johnny Johnson, two catches for 41 yards and a touchdown. Most of that production came on a wide-open 39-yard touchdown. Jalen Red, four catches for 54 yards. Great speed, as we discussed on last week's show, but not the most natural receiver. Fights the ball at times, had a couple drops. Not much to write home about for either guy in this game, despite not having to deal with Cam Bynum. I thought Bynum actually played very well. He did have one outstanding uh, pass defense in the deep field. I believe it was against Red, Uh, but, you know, Again, it's going to come down to his 40 time. He was everything he was cracked, everything we expect him to be. Outstanding ball skills. He's smart. And he's tough. Uh, very the, the play that he made downfield, he was able to run with the receiver, got his head back around, did a great job locating the pass in the air and positioning himself against the receiver to break up the throw. Again, you know, we won't know until the combine. And with Bynum, it's the sort of situation where if he can't break four five five, he's going to go potentially third day, although he's got second day ball skills. Now, speaking of Ohio State, as we discussed before, they rolled Michigan State to move to five and zero, despite missing a lot of players and head coach Ryan Day due to COVID nineteen protocols. Several of their starting offensive linemen did not play, including center Josh Myers, but Wyatt Davis did play, and he played well. Now we discussed Davis this summer said he was a mobile guard, but despite having good size, needed to add a little strength to his game. Well, after this game, it certainly looks like he has added some strength. He was getting pushed in the run game, anchored well against Naquan Jones. 
did his usual nice work chipping and getting to the second level to effectively seal linebackers. Really an excellent performance from Wyatt Davis. I think I remember him getting beat one time by Jones, but beyond that, he stopped everybody in his path. Speaking of Jones, he's a guy that we've discussed on the show more for his shortcomings than anything else since he kind of burst onto the scene a couple of years ago. Four assisted tackles in this game, one of them for a loss. And while Jones isn't a guy who's going to win with strength or show a wide array of rush moves and counters, he can get off the line of scrimmage. I mean, it's notable when watching him that he's moving often before anybody else, times the snap extremely well, did get penalized once for being offside, but he's an explosive first-step lineman. Problem is, when he doesn't get off the line like that, he has almost nothing in his arsenal to get off blocks. Did show a good motor, though, in this game, played hard until the whistle. So overall, I was impressed with his play when it came to what he does well, but he sure does look limited in terms of what his next level utility might be. The thing about Naquan Jones is, I mean, he's 6'2 and change, 325 pounds. So uh, he really should have that 6'2 and a half, 325 pounds. And he's an athletic uh, 325 pounds. So he should have that power. The problem is with Jones is his best football was two years ago as a sophomore. When he went head to head against Wyatt Davis, Davis just destroyed him. I mean, it was no contest. Davis, as far as I'm concerned, as I said in my Rises column at Pro Football Network, I had him in the middle of the first round in my recent mock draft, and he looked every bit, of, uh, every bit the part of a mid-first round choice. He's mobile. He's athletic. As you mentioned, he showed power in his game. He's getting good movement run blocking. He showed tremendous leadership uh, skills uh, you know, on the field, before the game, getting that Ohio State, that undermanned Ohio State team amped up for the Michigan State game. And it was a runaway, really, from the, the word go. Michigan State was never in this game. And, and Wyatt Davis looks like he's just going to be a special player at the next level, a big, strong guy who can hold the point at the line of scrimmage, take on and overpower larger defenders, or get out to the second level and annihilate linebackers. Very impressed with him. Naquan Jones, uh, you know, you said he played hard. Uh, and that's true. He has shown signs of that this year. Don't want to take that away from him. But really, he's never put it all together. And after his sophomore season, everyone thought, everyone who had watched him, thought that they were looking at a potential top 90 selection. And for our final Week 14 review, TCU came back from a 13-0 deficit to beat Oklahoma State. We were watching for Pro Wells, the tight end for the Frogs against Oklahoma State's linebackers and safeties in this game. Wells didn't record a catch after a nice little stretch of games where he had at least two catches and I believe five straight games. Did get behind safety Trey Sterling a couple times up the seam, wasn't targeted on those plays. He got a look on the first play of the game, though. Again, he got behind the defense. It was held a little bit by the defender. The ball was underthrown, which might have been why there was no penalty flag thrown. But other than that, Max Duggan really didn't look his way too much after that deep shot but you can still see the intrigue with a player like Wells in terms of his athleticism and his ability to stretch the seam very coveted at the NFL level, but you also have to produce on the field. If you want to be coveted by the NFL, at least in terms of being a reasonably early draft pick Sterling, as I mentioned, had his issues with Wells, but he was strong against the run before leaving due to injury late in the first half, four tackles, two for loss, always around the ball, but not great in coverage. The star among the players that we were watching, though, was Amen Obangbamiga. 12 tackles, one of them for loss, and three forced fumbles. All of them ripped right away from ball carries. The first two, very smart plays. His teammates 
had the running backs held up. So Ogbangbamigo went right after the ball, ripped it out. The last one, he himself had Duggan corralled at the line of scrimmage, just ripped the ball right out of his arms, took it away from him, even returned it a few yards into uh, TCU territory. He's not the biggest player, doesn't have great speed, but man, in this game, he was a playmaker, entered the game with one career forced fumble, left with four, and he did all of this in the second half after Sterling left the game too, taking on a bigger role and kind of taking on some of that responsibility that Sterling might have. What did you see in this game, Tony? Well, I saw a really interesting game. In fact, a really good game. It's too bad no one, uh, no one uh, told Pro Wells after that first uh, big down the field uh, attempt or target that uh, the game continued on for the next three and a half quarters because it was a good game. It's just, you never saw pro Wells, Uh, you know, as far as Sterling's concerned, really TCU got back in the game when Sterling went down with an injury because he is a forceful guy does have to improve his play in coverage. I mentioned that last week in the preview, he's really better moving up the field than in reverse, but still he is a game changer. And when he went out with the injury, all of a sudden, TCU started running the ball better. Dugan, who's not much of a passer, uh, was much more productive. And that really was the tipping point of the game. Although, as, as you said, you know, Obanga Miga uh, was sensational. I mean, stuffing the run, causing turnovers, uh, picking that ball, that, that turnover, that, he, that, that fumble that he forced up and then taking it the other way. He basically kept Oklahoma State in the game after TCU came back. So it was, it was a fun game to watch. I thought both Oklahoma State defenders played well. I thought you saw what Trey Sterling meant to that defense. It's just, you know, pro Wells. And as I said last week in the preview, he's a guy who was considering entering the draft. He has all the athleticism. And even though he doesn't have a quarterback that's a good passer at all, I mean, you got to start to get more involved in the offense. And now onto our week 15 previews, and we're going to go right back to the Oregon passing game again. This time, Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red are going to face off against Washington with cornerback Keith Taylor and safety Elijah Molden. Now this game, though, is in a bit of jeopardy after Washington paused football activities Wednesday. But at the moment, this game is still scheduled to be played. And if it does play, we should see Taylor go up against Johnson pretty often. Excellent size and length for Taylor. He's actually bigger than Johnson, which you don't see that often when you have cornerbacks matching up against receivers. Both of these guys do project in kind of a similar range of the draft as well. Molden is a guy who's kind of in the mold of Miles Bryant from last year in the fact that he is a really good football player, but he has poor size for safety. He's not a great athlete, but he is always around the ball, plays faster and bigger than his numbers would suggest. Five interceptions the past two seasons, good ball skills, may have to provide some help over the top against the speedy Jalen Red. Now, Tony, I know you're higher than scouts are on Molden. Bryant went undrafted last year. Can Molden get himself selected next April, unlike his former teammate? Well, he will get selected. There are some people, you know, we talked about Dylan Radson before uh, being projected as a first-round pick. I've seen and heard where Elijah Molden in some mock drafts is projected as a first-round pick. That's not going to happen. He just does not have the size and the speed uh, to be a first-round uh, pick. It reminds me a bit of Buda Baker in the sense that he's smart, he's instinctive, he's tough. He finds ways to make plays. And as we saw with Buda Baker, a guy that was ridiculously underdrafted and is one of the best at his position right now, just signed a huge contract uh, extension not too long ago. Uh, I-, I-, I think Elijah Molden is sort of in the same mold. Keith Taylor 
There was talk that he was going to enter last year's draft. He's got good size. Yeah, Taylor is so, sort of the, the pro wells, if you will, of the Washington defense in the sense that, you know, he makes plays on occasion, but I don't see a lot of consistency in his play. Uh, if he gets drafted, it's going to be later on. I think the uh, Oregon receivers, the speed of red, the size of Johnson, and the consistency of Johnson uh, is going to be a, a good matchup or could be matchup problems for Taylor. Uh, so, but he's got to really kick it in the gear. Listen, the Pac-12 really wants this game to go off because whoever wins this game is going to win the uh, Northern Division of the Pac-12 to eventually play in the conference title game against USC next week. Next up, we have a trip to the SEC where Florida's breakout quarterback Kyle Trask takes on LSU. Obviously, it's been a down season for the Tigers who just instituted a uh, one-year postseason ban on themselves, which when you have a 3-5 and five record doesn't really say too much. But LSU did just get crushed by Alabama 55-17, where Mac Jones has seemingly taken the lead, at least in the betting market, over Trask in the Heisman discussion. But this week, Trask is going to get a shot at this defense, and it's a defense that still features several future NFL players. Everyone already knows about Derek Stingley Jr. for the 2022 NFL Draft, but linebackers Jabril Cox and Damone Clark are also impact players in the back seven. Cox transferred from North Dakota State before the season started. 45 tackles this season, two interceptions, four and a half tackles for loss. Doesn't have great size, but he's great in pursuit. Very good in coverage as well. Should see a lot of star tight end Kyle Pitts. Clark, also a good athlete, a bit better size than Cox has. Not quite as effective in coverage though, but he is tied for the team lead with 50 tackles. Could be an interesting matchup within the game since the game as a whole with a 23 and a half point spread may not be so interesting. This is a game that scouts will look to, to see the versatility and the completeness of both uh, Cox and Clark. I got to tell you, Cox really has not impressed me all that much this year. He's a very athletic guy. He covers a lot of area on the field. The play has been kind of spotty, sort of like LSU overall this year. Uh, and I don't really think he's elevated his game compared to a year ago. Coming into the season, he was given some top 45 grades by scouts. I don't think that's going to happen. Damon Clark was a guy who, after the 2018 season, I graded him as a potential third-round choice. What happened in 2019 was he just wasn't able to see the field because they had so much depth at that uh, uh, linebacker position uh, at, at LSU with two first-round picks. He's come back uh, nicely this year. I think he has the athleticism to play. He has the athleticism to play in coverage. Obviously, it's a different game against uh, Kyle Pitts because Kyle Pitts is going to be the first tight end uh, selected in the draft. He's going to be a mid-first round choice. He's one of those guys who is basically uh, a, a plays the, the tight end position like a receiver. He's a receiver in a tight end body. He just keeps getting better and better in large part because Kyle Trask continues to improve. Uh, and this is going to be this could be a matchup problem for the LSU uh, linebackers which it hasn't been a good year for those guys. But again, this is something that scouts will look at specifically and draw upon. And depending on which way it goes, we could, inter could ask these guys, ask the uh, LSU linebackers about this in pre-draft uh, interviews if it doesn't go their way. Of course, Cox is uh, a senior. Damon Clark will have to wait and see if he enters the draft. Now heading a bit further up the East Coast to the ACC, where North Carolina will battle Miami. We've discussed the Hurricanes secondary several times on this show. Cornerback Al Blades Jr. is hurt, won't play in this one, won't play the rest of the season, in fact. 
but safeties Gervin Hall Jr. and Bubba Bolden remain. Hall, more of the complete safety. Bolden's a guy who's a bit better in the box, leads the team with 52 tackles, also has four forced fumbles, three pass breakups, two block kicks, and one interception. So, I mean, this guy makes plays week in and week out, and this week he's going to have to because this secondary gets a challenge, especially without Blades, against Sam Howell and the UNC passing game. Howell has two very nice receivers to throw the ball to. Diami Brown, his outside deep threat, who's averaging over 18 yards per catch on 51 receptions over the 10 games they've played this season. Slotman Daz Newsom, whose numbers are a bit down from 2019, but he still has 46 catches for 601 yards and five scores this year. Maybe he sees Bolden a bit more often working the underneath routes, while Hall is tasked with helping over the top against the speed of Brown. What are you looking for in this matchup, Tony? Well, well, just like the matchup of the LSU linebackers, Jabril Cox and Damon Clark against Florida tight end Kyle Pitts is a game that you know, scouts will keep close eye on. It's the same situation for Bubba Bolden here. I'm told Bolden will enter the draft. As you mentioned, his versatility and the fact that you know he's a tough, fierce player who helps out on special teams, very good against the run, doesn't have the great sideline-to-sideline side range, doesn't have the great lateral speed, which he's going to need against Diami Brown, who's a deep threat. Daz Newsom has been more of a possession receiver, but he's also shown the ability to get downfield. So Bolden's coverage skills, I think, will dictate a lot as to where he goes in April's draft. And as I said, I'm told he will enter the draft. If he can't cover these guys and he comes across uh, against Brown and Newsom as more of a one-dimensional in the box or between the numbers downhill safety, he's going to go much later than, uh, you know, than he hopes to. Uh, but if he shows cover skills and then he runs well before the draft, you know, Bolden could potentially sneak into the late part of day two. Now for our final preview, we have a late round battle in the trenches in the big 10 when Illinois left tackle Vidarian Lowe faces Northwestern and defensive end Ernest Brown. Lowe is a guy with good movement skills, very tall, good length, Similar height to Brown, actually, who is more of a traditional 4-3 defensive end in terms of size than a lot of the defensive ends that we end up talking about on the show. Zero sacks this year, though, after having six the prior two seasons. So we've had some diminishing returns there as a pass rusher, but he is making more plays overall this season, especially against the run, than he did in years past. Tony, how would you handicap this matchup? Yeah, Lowe is a guy that I've liked for three years now. He's not the most nimble guy. He's a college left tackle who may eventually be kicked inside the guard. Ernest Brown had a season cut short in 2019 with injury, but he's incredibly athletic. He's a guy that goes about 280 pounds. He's projected to run in the four nines. You can see that athleticism on Phil. He's forceful up the field. He's got a good change of direction, covers a lot of area pursuing the, uh, pursuing the action. This is a, it could be a matchup problem for 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 Verdanian Lowe because Ernest Brown has such an athletic advantage over him the speed off the edge then again with Brown besides staying healthy you want to see his strength at the point of attack and in that vein Lowe has the advantage over Ernest Brown and that's it for the 165th episode of the draft analyst presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network do you believe if you're enjoying the show please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week with more college football and NFL draft talk as the season winds down here. But until then, for Tony Pauline, this is Chris Tripodi. Good night.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.